0: Beautiful and palatial, SportsTalk.com studios. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another Thursday night edition of the Ultimate Sports Talk show on UltimateSportsTalk.com. I am your host, Dave Mitchell, and tonight we have got a jam-packed show for you this evening, as what we are going to do is go over the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. Of course, the British Open going on right now overseas. And a lot of interesting tidbits about college football. And our guest tonight is going to be from BroJackson.com and FineSided.com. And that's going to be Matt Lardner. Matt wrote an article about a week ago in which he discussed how the Ohio State Buckeyes this year would unseat the SEC as BCS college football champions. So we're going to talk with Matt about how he thinks that will happen and just what else is happening in college football, especially with the fact that Will Muschamp, the coach at Florida, now seems to think that Urban Meyer is the bane of his existence and that Urban Meyer simply is in the back of the mind and just grinding away at Will Muschamp. Down in Florida. We're going to talk about that coming up a little bit later on. But this past Tuesday night, let's start things off with the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. And of course, you can join us. Let's, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you this. You can join us here at Ultimate Sports Talk just simply by joining our chat room. You can send me emails at dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com or you can send us a tweet here tonight at OHBB co Well, On Tuesday night, home field advantage for the World Series this year was won by the American League. They won the All-Star Game 3-0. It's the craziest thing you could ever think of, folks, but it's been going on for the last few years. Bud Selig, in his mind somewhere, has decided that this All-Star Game has to determine the home field advantage. Well, not only did it determine that the American League would beat the home field winner, in the World Series this coming October and partially into November. But Mariano Rivera was also named the MVP, which was the surprise of all surprises, right? Everybody could have guessed this one. All he had to do was come in and pitch, and that's what he did. The only inning was he pitched the eighth, which was a surprise because Jim Leland was not about to take the chance of Mariano Mariano Rivera blowing the save or blowing the ball game. He was summoned into the eighth inning just to make sure that he could pitch, and during that time, it was pretty classy. He soaked up a 90-second standing ovation from the fans at Citi Field, which really, it wasn't a visiting crowd. It was still in New York City, and that's where Rivera has made his name and reputation. And he got the three straight outs while helping the American League to that victory Tuesday night. The game was almost an afterthought. The team stood off the field. And let Rivera stand on the mound for the full time by himself. It was a touching moment. And afterwards, as I said, Rivera was almost speechless. The game was an afterthought. And he talked with CBS Sports about not only what happened on the field, but his feelings afterwards. I don't think
1: it's a, there are words to describe this evening. Uh, speechless. I have no words to describe it. I mean, it has things amazing uh leaving me alone there i feel like <laughs> i feel alone and it was a, it was a great feeling though i mean it remind me when uh i got the uh the record when jorge posadas uh pushed me back to the mound okay. you know this is spectacular i see the both teams standing on the uh in front of the dog out and 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 sharing uh, and clouding and, and uh the fans standing. Remarkable.
2: The New York crowd giving you a standing ovation with your teammates giving you a standing ovation. Were you able to enjoy it? Were you able to take it in as it was happening?
1: Every bit of it. Every bit of it. I mean, I, I soaked it in. I, I took it. I took everything, you know, because it was priceless. I will never see this again, you know. And uh, again, uh. uh as a humble man from small town from beautiful Panama to the big apple and have something like this, a night like this for myself. I can uh I can I can think enough.
2: Eighth inning, not ninth.
1: Was that something that Jim Leland discussed with you? Yes, uh Jimmy discussed that with me because I mean he wanna make sure that, uh, that I pitch, you know and I would think page, I was fine with
0: it. Rivera and nine other pitchers combined on a three-hitter for the American League as they snapped that three-game skid and, as I said earlier, regained home field advantage in the World Series. Joe Nathan actually came in and saved it in Rivera's place after the American League scratched out a pair of runs and then got an RBI double from Jason Kipnis. The Indians own Jason Kipnis. It's ridiculous to sit back and complain about how someone manages an all-star game because you just can't win. Even when you win the game, you just can't win. That being said, I, I thought it was disrespectful of Jim Leland to pitch Rivera in the eighth inning. That was his game to close. Bring him in in the ninth. It was a 3 nothing victory. Just bring him in in the ninth and let him pitch that inning. But they pitched him in the eighth. Well, there's a lot of tight races as we head into the second half of the season, which actually begins tomorrow. Let's take a look at the standings so far In Major League Baseball. And let's start in the American League East, where Boston is leading that division by two and a half games over Tampa Bay. Out West, the Oakland A's, the defending divisional champions, are leading over the Texas Rangers by two. And in the Central, it's Detroit over the Cleveland Indians by a game and a half. So like I said, a lot of tight races in the American League. Now in the National League, it's kind of the opposite, especially in the East where Atlanta is leading Washington by six and Philadelphia by six and a half. In the Central, St. Louis is leading Pittsburgh by a game and five over the Cincinnati Reds. And out West, it's Arizona leading by two and a half over the Los Angeles Dodgers, if you can believe that. Boy, in the last month, they have made up a lot of ground, and they are 47-47 and on the year. The team with the best record in baseball so far right now is the Boston Red Sox. With a 58 and 39 mark. Let's take a look at what's going on in the wild card standings because that has a great determination on what's going to happen in the playoffs. In the American League right now, it's Tampa Bay and Texas, Baltimore in third, a game and a half behind the Rangers for that last spot. And in the National League, it's Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, both out of the Central Division, the top two teams. And the Reds have a five game lead over Washington for that last spot. So it should be very entertaining. It begins all tomorrow night with the second half of the year. And John Paul Morosi and Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports sat down earlier this week after the All-Star game was over and discussed what is going to happen in the second half. And of course, the big story in the first half, that being Baltimore's Chris Davis.
3: 37 home runs entering the break. Now, I know the break went a little later this year, so he had more time to pile up numbers. But the question is, can he catch Barry Bonds at 73 or, more appropriately as he puts it, Roger Maris at 61? Obviously not going to be easy, but playing in Camden Yards will
2: help. JP,
3: what are his odds?
2: This is a fascinating story, Kenny. I think he's going to do it. At least get to 61. With that hitter-friendly ballpark and a great hitting lineup, you know Baltimore with that steamy weather in the summertime, that ball is going to fly. I think he's going to get at least 60 home runs. And what I want to see, Kenny, is I want to see America get excited about this. I think back to when I was a kid, Ken Griffey Jr. in 94, when unfortunately he had to stop the season short because of the strike, he was on his way. And I remember every morning getting up trying to figure out if in the West Coast game, Griffey had a home run. I want to see that same level of excitement. Now, I know there's that sort of guilty conscience we have as baseball fans about the McGuire-Sosa era, but this is a different time. Theory testing is involved. We should get excited about Chris Davis, who I think is a fantastic story right now.
3: All right, going back to when I was a kid and Babe Ruth was playing. No, seriously,
2: <laughs> the Pirates.
3: Now, going back to when we both were children, that was about when the Pirates had their last winning season in 1993. And the question, of course, entering the second half, will this be the year? But really, more importantly, we've seen them have a terrific first half become a much more legitimate team than they've been even in the past two years. I see them not only getting that winning record. In fact, I almost think that is fait accompli, as crazy as that might sound. I see them contending until the very end and perhaps making the playoffs.
2: I think they will, Kenny. I really do think they will. I think that it's a much different team. They now have Garrett Cole. They have this real, to me, a real crew of young players that have come up and made a huge impact. Cole. To me, Tyon obviously can't help down the stretch if they need him. Marte is there. Alvarez is taking that next step. Also, Russell Martin, don't forget about that. You have some real pennant-winning know-how there with Russell Martin involved. He has a chance to, I think, make that huge impact down the stretch, be that veteran influence to settle that team down. To me, Russell Martin will untold stories in this team, Kenny. He has been huge for the Buccos this year.
3: Interesting segue there because Russell Martin is no longer on the New York Yankees. They are the team that declined to sign him for reasons we still don't know. Well, what about the Yankees in the second half? We've seen them put it together with smoke and mirrors and various masking tape and all kinds of tape in the first half. But can they do it in the second? And can they do it in Mariano Rivera's final season? JP, I don't see it. I don't see A-Rod coming back, regardless of whether he's hurt, suspended, whatever the case might be. Jeter. Jeter, we don't know what he's going to be, even if he gets back healthy. Granderson, okay, he should be healthy and fine. But they are so short. And the trade market is so thin, it is difficult to imagine them making the playoffs again.
2: I don't think they will, Kenny. And I think that Mariano Rivera, as hard as it is for us to think about him not pitching in the playoffs this year, he has 42 career saves in the postseason. 42. His number, 42. I think that if he retires with 42 career saves in the postseason, most ever, greatest postseason pitcher we've ever seen. It's kind of fitting. So, as, as much as you, we'd all like to see one more October for Mo, I think maybe the baseball guys have in their minds it's going to be 42 saves.
3: Now, of course, if we had Mo sitting right here, he'd say that he wants 50 by the end of the <laughs> right. season, but it might not happen. Now, final story, one that is really kind of fascinating. At the start of the season in the American League West, most people probably thought Los Angeles Angels. Josh Hamilton joining Albert Pujols, my goodness. Well, I never thought that, but now what we see, the Angels are a almost distant third place, the Oakland Athletics, again, the defending division champions, and the Texas Rangers, two-time World Series appearances not long ago, they're battling. The question is, which one is going to get there? What do you think?
2: I think Oakland, Kenny. I really do. They're kind of putting a dent in their own argument about needing a new ballpark to compete because they look pretty good two years in a row. They're young pitching. I think that was the biggest question, Kenny, coming into the year. Can Parker sustain it? Can Malone sustain it? Can Griffin sustain it? They have. They've been very good. Their bullpen is excellent with Doolittle. Balfour is a very good, very balanced team. And the Rangers, their young guys just haven't quite taken that next step. Profar's been a little bit slow to adjust. Andrews, where has he been this season? So I think that unless you see a bunch of guys really return their performance uh, in Texas, I think they're going to they're miss out. They, they, at the very least, they may have a chance to get the wild card. But to me, Kenny, Oakland is the class of this division.
3: Texas is a bit of an unknown right now simply because we don't know which of their starting pitchers is going to be healthy. Agondo should be back in the second half, Colby Lewis perhaps, perhaps, down the line, Matt Harrison, and I would expect as well that they will make at least one trade, perhaps for a pitcher, perhaps for a hitter. That's going to be a different looking team on August 1st.
0: You know, I've got to say that I think the best team in baseball right now is the team with the best record, Boston. I think the team that has been most disappointing is the Los Angeles Angels, and I think their ownership is really going to take it out on Mike Sosha at the end of the season. But in looking forward, don't forget that the trading deadline is coming up just at the end of this month on July 31st. Now, the second half of the season begins tomorrow night in Major League Baseball. The interleague game, let's take a look at the schedule for tomorrow night. The interleague game of the weekend is going to be Atlanta playing in Chicago against the White Sox. Now, when you look at the rest of the schedule, the Cleveland Indians will be in Minnesota against the Twins. The Los Angeles Dodgers are in Washington. Tampa Bay goes to Toronto. The New York Yankees are in Boston to take on the Red Sox. And, of course, that will be the headline story on ESPN all weekend long. Philadelphia is in New York to play the Mets. The Pirates go to Cincinnati to take on the Reds. And these next ten games for the Cincinnati Reds are going to be extremely important because they played the Pirates the Giants, and the Dodgers. Baltimore goes to Texas, also in Major League Baseball. The first place, Detroit Tigers, go to Kansas City. Miami Marlins are in Milwaukee. Seattle goes to Houston. The San Diego Padres play in St. Louis. The Cubs are at Colorado. The A's go to Los Angeles to play the Angels. And rounding out the schedule, the Arizona Diamondbacks are in San Francisco to take on the Giants. The second half begins on Friday. Well, let's switch over to college football. Boy, I'll tell you, can you have any worse offseason than Johnny Menzel? I guess if you say you're Aaron Hernandez, okay, maybe you've had a worse offseason. But Johnny Menzel has just been a mess. The reigning Heisman Trophy winner, the only guy as a freshman to ever win the Heisman Trophy has just been on a mistake-plagued off-season for Texas A&M. And it culminated last weekend when he was at the Manning football camp. It's run by Archie Manning, the father of Peyton, and Eli. And not only was he there and made some mistakes, I mean, the kid's 20 years old. Let's cut him just a little bit of slack. And, of course, when he was sent home on Saturday, they said he was dehydrated. And sick? Of course he was. He was hungover. <laughs> he went out the night before. There's nothing saying that you can't go out and have a good time at age 20. But when you're the Heisman Trophy winner, when you're a starting quarterback for a major football team in the country like Texas A&M, you've really got to keep your mistakes down to a minimum. And Johnny Manziel at the SEC Media Days yesterday admitted he's made some mistakes. I'm continuing to grow up. I've made some
4: mistakes, and I'm absolutely manning up for those. Um, some things that that I regret. Some things that I think were blown a little bit out of proportion. But um, at the end of the day, um, that's just how it goes, and you have to live with that. But I'm growing up, continuing to try not to make the same mistake twice.
0: Well, that's a good goal to have for him, and he really needs to have an outstanding season for Texas A&M to compete in the SEC. Texas A&M coach Kevin Sumlin, who's entering his second year, explained his thoughts to the SEC media at media day yesterday about what has happened to Manziel during this off season. We
3: have standards and we have consequences for, for actions, and uh, you know the things that we talk about, the discussions that we've had, either personally one-on-one or with uh, his family involved. Uh, Everybody knows that it's been documented that we had a conversation in January before we got going with the administration. Uh, And uh, really, our compliance people just to educate the family, educate him on do's and don'ts, what not to do, what to do, uh, how to communicate with us. Um, You know, that's all part of it. You know, the, the, the message, the things on Twitter. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know that that warrants kicking a guy off the team. Has he made mistakes? Yes. Um, is he proud of every decision he's made? No.
0: Absolutely not. Johnny Manziel will be the first person to tell you that. But let's cut the kid just a little bit of slack. Well, this is an interesting story about the NCAA. If you're into playing those PlayStation and EA games. The NCAA announced yesterday that it's no longer going to allow EA Sports to use its logo starting next year. This move ends a business deal with the gaming industry giant and comes as the NCAA is fighting that high-profile lawsuit that you never hear anything about. That lawsuit says the governing body owes billions with a B of dollars to former players for allowing their likeness to be used for free. Now, this contract is expiring with EA Sports and the NCAA in June of 2014, a year from now. However, that's not stopping EA Sports from producing a new college football video game depicting powerhouse schools like Alabama, Ohio State, and Oregon from their California-based company. They've already made that clear. They are reporting a $3.8 billion revenue during its fiscal year. And aside from the NCAA football franchise game, it's well known for its Madden NFL, FIFA soccer, and other games. EA Sports first began making an NCAA football game in 1998. And Todd Mitchell, the senior analyst with New York-based Breen Capital, said losing the NCAA brand isn't likely to hurt EA Sports. He's estimating that the NCAA football accounts for only about 5% of EA Sports revenue, or about $125 million. Well, our guest tonight is Matt Lardner from BroJackson.com and Fansided.com, and we are going to be back and talk about him, plus the brouhaha, between Will Muschamp and Urban Meyer, and we're going to do all of that right after this timeout. In Cincinnati last night, Dylan Michael made his highly anticipated debut in front of a full house and did not disappoint. Michael went three of five with a single and two doubles while driving in three as Cincinnati defeated New York six to three. Michael, Cincinnati's number one pick in this year's amateur draft, virtually forced the team to promote him after pounding minor league pitching since his signing. Last at Bat, a novel by Mark Donahue. Available at Joseph A. Beth, Barnes & Noble, and Books & Company. And you can also order Mark Donahue's book, Last at Bat, soon to be made into a movie. And you can get it right here at ultimatesportstalk.com. I'm Dave Mitchell. Thanks for joining us tonight here on the Ultimate Sports Talk show. Over the next few weeks with the college football season coming into play, we're going to be previewing all of the major conferences in the BCS and we're going to start out tonight by talking about the Big Ten Conference. We're going to do that with Matt Lardner of Bro Jackson and com. But before we get into that, of course, there's a big fight. Boy, I'll tell you, the war of words in college football is really turning on. And it's happening between Florida and Ohio State. And Will Muschamp, the current Florida coach, is blaming Urban Meyer for reporting recruiting violations to the NCAA. Now, here's the story. Ohio State turned in Florida for bump recruiting violations involving Gator running backs coach Brian White and Brooklyn, New York running back Curtis Samuel, meaning White had contacted Samuel during prescribed non-contact recruiting periods. Well, it's a violation. Last year, OSU notified the NCAA about a situation with 2013 defensive end recruit Jordan Sherrett, who rode to Florida's campus with a friend, then on the Gator football team. Again, another violation. Muschamp had to pull White away from recruiting for three days, while an investigation was conducted. While not denying that OSU had notified the NCAA of the possibility of a recruiting violation, Meyer denied responsibility for the university's accusations. He said, it's absolutely not true that I turned in the University of Florida, Meyer said, in the Gainesville Sun. Weeks after, Meyer learned that the compliance guy at Ohio State, without any coach involvement, forwarded an article to the conference office. Standard procedure, according to Meyer. Once again, zero coach involvement, is what Meyer said. However, ESPN.com, that bastion of fairness, citing sources, which they'll never say who they are, said that although Meyer was not initially aware of the Ohio State allegation, he was aware of it and endorsed it. In each case, both Samuel and Sherratt, Florida was cleared of any wrongdoing by the NCAA and the SEC. Of course they were. The last thing the NCAA wants to do is put a school from the SEC on any type of probation. It's the best conference in the country. It's the one that brings them the most money. They're not going to sit a school down for two or three years, like an Alabama, a Florida, a Texas A&M, a Tennessee, they're not going to do it. Now, though Meyer denied doing it, someone at Ohio State did notify the NCAA. Now, when Muschamp was asked yesterday at the SEC media days if he found it odd that Meyer's current school turned in his former school, Muschamp said, Big Ten media days are next week, ask him. Well, first of all, so what? Teams and schools turn in teams and schools all the time. Doesn't make a difference if it's Ohio State and a used to coach at Notre uh, at Florida. It doesn't make a case if it's Kansas turning in Notre Dame or Oklahoma turning in Nebraska. It happens all the time. What's going on here is Muschamp is trying to gain favor with the Florida fans, because he's not the most popular coach that Florida has ever had. Spurrier is probably number one, and Urban Meyer is number two. Let's face it. Meyer won the SEC. Muschamp can't. Muschamp can't measure up to either Spurrier or Meyer when it comes to coaching. He plays boring football in a tough and exciting conference. The Florida Gator fans don't like it. And let's talk about somebody leaving someone out in the cold, what did Muschamp do when he left Texas? He was the coach in waiting at Texas. And because he couldn't wait any longer for that job, he decided to jump ship and went to Florida. He just can't measure up to Steve Spurrier or Will Muschamp. That's his problem, and he's trying to gain favor with the Florida fans. We're going to concentrate on the Big Ten tonight. And during the next few weeks, we are going to talk about the SEC and, of course, the Pac-12. And all that is coming up here on the Ultimate Sports Talk show here at Ultimate Sports Talk. But tonight, we're going to focus in on the Big Ten. Well, the SEC has really been the champs of college football over the past several years. But when you look at what's going to happen in the year 2013, all we've got to do is look in southern Ohio to a writer and editor for Bro Jackson and a writer for Fansided.com. That's Matt Lardner, who wrote an article a few days ago, Why Ohio State Will End the SEC's Reign of Terror. And that's why I wanted to have him on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk show. Matt, thanks for joining us this evening. How are you? Thanks
4: for having me, Dave. I'm doing well. Glad to be here.
0: Well, I like this article, Matt, for two reasons. First of all, everybody knows that I'm not a big Notre Dame fan, and you showed the Notre Dame weakness, and a weakness that could be considered in the SEC. So let's begin with the basic formula that you talked about in this article, Matt. You give Notre Dame credit for really achieving that formula last year. What's the formula?
4: Well, I think there's a number of factors. that goes into um, having a program that can challenge some of this SEC thing. And maybe the most important thing is being able to recruit down in their area, Um the South is fertile grounds for college football talent right now. We see, uh, we see SEC schools, um with really continued success recruiting the same guys, the guys who live close to home of grown up being fans. Uh, so where Notre Dame has an advantage is this, this recruiting reach that they have. Um they can go border to border and recruit from any territory, uh, based on tradition, things like that. And I think that's something that, uh, that Urban Meyer really brings to Ohio State. He's been aggressively recruiting himself, and uh, he's really making it not just an Ohio uh, Midwest team, but a cross-country uh, assembly of talent.
0: Well, you talked about some of the schools that Notre Dame played that the SEC would really pummel in this article that you wrote about a week ago. I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here, Ma- Matt. How... Is Ohio State's schedule, especially their their uh, non-conference schedule, any different than what Notre Dame has to play?
4: Yeah, that's really that's really the big issue. Is um, competition-wise, when you when you make it through the SEC gauntlet, you played a number of the best teams in the country, and that's really one thing that can't be replicated on um, the Big Ten or elsewhere. But uh, what Urban Meyer is doing in in recruiting the best talent. Um, I'd say would you say that would you say that the Big Ten is among the like the second tier conferences, assuming the SEC is the top count?
0: Oh I would say th- yeah, definitely. I think you're right there.
4: Yeah, you're not gonna get you're you're not gonna quite frankly, you're not gonna get that kind of competition anywhere but the SEC. But um the Big Ten, especially when you factor in like the conditions, when you're playing uh road games in in harsh winery conditions and you have to maybe pull out closer wins and stuff. And uh, I think it might be the closest simulation of an SEC talent we can find in college sports.
0: You know, you brought up a little earlier, Matt, and we're talking with Matt Lardner who wrote the article, Why Ohio State Will End the SEC's Reign of Terror. You talked about Urban Meyer a little bit ago and what he brought from Florida to Ohio State. Talk specifically about... What he has done to increase the recruiting to Ohio State from the southern states? Um,
4: in the 2013 class, we're talking uh, we're talking from talent from Georgia, from California, uh, from Texas, and from Florida. Obviously, uh, during his time at Florida, Myers got recruiting feelers uh, all down there and really all around the country. Um, when you combine Myers' recruiting talent with uh, the prestige of Ohio State and stuff. So he's really, uh, it's not just concentrated within the Ohio, Pennsylvania regions of recruiting. Um, he's really going out and getting some of the elite talent, uh, from all across the country. And we saw that, uh, it, with their, they had the number two recruiting class, I think, in 2013. And, uh, anytime you can recruit like that, bring the talent in, uh, it's going to be easier to coach and really create a successful team.
0: Well, another thing you brought up was the fact that Ohio State really didn't miss a beat when Tressel left. Fickle was brought in for the one year, and then Urban Meyer comes in. Talk about the the consistency that Ohio State had between Tressel as a recruiter and Meyer as a recruiter.
4: Yeah, um, I don't think I don't think Jim Trestle's a fun coach by any means or an exciting coach, but I think he's a really solid. Uh, I think he was a really solid guy to lead the program, and he always brought in, on um, elite talent, had Ohio State in contention, uh, pretty regularly. So, in the passing of the torch, uh, I mean, Fickle's year was certainly unspectacular at the helm of the Ohio State program, but they really didn't, they didn't lose, uh, a lot of elite talent to transfers or anything like that, and I think their recruiting, uh, especially when they brought Meyer on board, he made a, he made a strong late push after, uh, after he was announced at Ohio State there was a lot more there's a lot more interest from recruits to come play for a for an established coach like Urban Meyer. Uh so really moving from an established elite coach like Trussell to one in the same mold like Meyer is uh allowed Ohio State to have a great base and then be able to build on that with the more kind of the players who would play more exciting football, which is one thing that Meyer brings to the program.
0: Matt, you know, I was looking at some of the opinions about your article down at the bottom, and it was funny to listen to some of them or actually read some of them, I should say. And most of them talked about how Ohio State always lost to SEC teams when they got to the championship game under Trussell. Do they forget the fact that Urban Meyer was the coach of Florida when he won two national championships and won against Ohio State and he would be the coach of Ohio State if they ever faced up with him again?
4: Yeah, it's um it's really important to consider how widely different uh, urban wide like spread offense packages versus uh versus what Trestle ran. It's really it's really a different feel for a different team out there. And I think I think Ohio State recognizing in those two national championship losses that the key component they are missing is speed and speed such an essential uh it's such an essential opponent of college football that they're really going out there and recruiting these uh these really fast athletic uh Kids from all around—they're going and they're going and stealing some of the SEC speed, uh, going into the recruiting areas and grabbing some of the players who would who would feature for SEC. So, um, well, Ohio State's returning nine starters from their offense last year, which was an undefeated season, which really under the radar. I don't know. I don't know if you can hype it as a true undefeated season, but when you have a guy like there, Miller um, making plays with a quarterback. Uh, using his elusiveness, uh, it's really to whole different off of something we saw a few years ago in the national championship games.
0: Well, you moved right in very seamlessly into my next idea here, and that is Braxton Miller. Is he ready to take the leap to be one of the elite quarterbacks in the country?
4: Um, Obviously, Irvin Meyer and the coaching staff, I'm sure we've been working with them all off season to um to cut down on the mistakes and stuff because when you get a player like that, uh you're gonna see flashes of brilliance and it's important it's important to kind of rein in the mistakes. And I think uh Braxton certainly made progress over the last season and uh and when he gets more time under piloting the system under Meyer, being more acclimated to uh to how he wants it to run. Um, I think this could be the year that we see Braxton break out, break out more or less, and be able to lead an elite team.
0: Well, we're talking with Matt Lardner, the editor for Bro Jackson, and also a writer for Fansided dot com. Matt, you know, you brought up Johnny Manziel, the Heisman Trophy winning quarterback from one year ago, and the fits that he gave Alabama a year ago. Is Braxton Miller a bigger version of Johnny Manziel? What's your thoughts on that?
4: Um, it's hard to make a comparison. Where what I what I can say is that they're both um they're both elusive, especially in the pocket. And uh anybody who watched the Texas A and M game where they knocked off where they knocked off Alabama early in the year, um could see them by when Manziel was keeping plays alive against the aggressive defense. It was really uh it was really frustrating. Alabama uh, they're struggling with containing them, and I think there's a lot of the same traits, uh, that Mandel brought to that game in the way that Braxton Miller plays quarterback. Um and Ohio State, another thing with the Texas's, uh, Texas A&M's elite offensive line, uh, kind of neutralized the strong Alabama pass rush, and this year we're seeing, um four of the five offensive line starters return for Ohio State. So they really have, uh, this body of work and the, the elements in place that they They could find success in the right situation, I guess in f c c school,
0: well, one of the weaknesses that Ohio State had last year, of course, Matt was the linebacker position. Have they shored that position up this year?
4: I think that's still going to be a concern for
0: um, for ohio state this year their their secondary is
4: really the strongest part of their defense uh they returned three starters there um but it's going to be important for it's going to be important to make sure that they lock down uh, defensively what what they have been adding over the last year or so is, um, a very strong cast rush. They've got five-star recruits like, uh, Adolphus Washington and Noah Spence, who are going to be putting a lot more pressure on the quarterback. So really, um, they still don't have those elite, well-established linebackers like they had during the, um, during the Hawk body carpenter their days like that. Um, but they might be able to, uh, keep it from becoming a shootout by, uh, with their strengths in other positions.
0: Matt, of course, uh, there's a lot of opinions as to who's going to be the top team in the Big Ten this year. But everybody always keeps coming back to Ohio State as being one of the upper echelon teams. Who else in the Big Ten do you feel is going to be the main competition for Ohio State this year? Is it still Michigan?
4: I think. I think to me, um, Penn State. Penn State's done really good. Uh,
0: with all the fallout
4: from the Paterno scandal, I think their guys done a good job of really keeping the county headed and. Uh, kind of kind of reinvigorating the program, but I think at the end of the day, the Michigan game is going to be uh, the most important class of the year, and I think I'd suspect it's probably going to have some Big Ten title ramifications and possibly even what could have an impact on the national championship game.
0: Matt Lardner, our guest, just a couple more questions, Matt. I know it's a long way off, but do you think Alabama is beatable this year?
4: To me to me Alabama's the team to beat in the SEC. Um I think I think again they brought in the number one recruiting class. Again, uh, Nick Saban's really got the engine turning. I I don't I don't know that they're beatable. Um what I do know is that playing through the tough SEC schedule um really has a knack for for wearing teams down and it wouldn't surprise me at all if one of the other elite teams um challenged Alabama mightily and possibly even knocked them off. Um but to me, if I had to pick an SEC team most likely to make it back, it would be it would be Alabama.
0: Well, one other thing, a couple of weeks ago, I got on my bandwagon mad about the sanctions that Oregon was given, and compared them to how Ohio State was hit, and Oregon really wasn't. What were your opinions of the Oregon sanctions?
4: Well, I really think um, I really think the tattoo thing. Looking looking back on it a few years later, I think the, all the hoopla around it was. Uh, Quite overblown. Um, arguably, arguably, what's going on in Eugene is probably uh, more egregious of, of a violation than uh, than Ohio State's issue. And uh, I think I think Chip Kelly's move might have said a decent amount that at first he was really hesitant to leave Oregon, but then uh, he went to the Eagles and kind of. We see so many of these coaches just leave trails in, in their wake as they uh, as they exit the program. Um, the NCAA's got a lot of problems with recruiting violations and things of that nature. Uh and I think a team like Oregon, especially when when what they're selling is kind of this like super exciting spread style and then all the flair of the um tricked out jerseys and things like that. Um it might it might attract uh it might be able to attract a certain uh kind of player who buys into to the hype who's uh susceptible to uh buying into violations, I guess, being more receptive to perks.
0: Well one just one real quick question, Matt, since I've got you on the phone right now. How's Ohio U look for this year out of Athens?
4: <laughs> well they uh they've been they've been really strong in the past couple of years. Uh blankenship made uh made the Maxwell watch list. So I think if they're uh if they're gonna be able to prevail on the Mac it's gonna be behind uh a real strong running game and that that kind of uh, quarterback running back combo that we see. Um, but at the end of the day, football in Ohio uh, centers around Columbus, and uh, that's the that's the team with the title with the title aspirations. I,
0: I think you're absolutely right on that, Matt. But what's the, I, I really enjoyed this article. The article's name is "Why Ohio State Will End the SEC's Reign of Terror." Look it up; you can find it on the internet just by uh, simply Googling Matt Lardner. And that title name, you made a lot of great points and and made me a believer that Ohio State could beat the SEC. Matt, thanks a lot for joining us here tonight.
4: Thanks for having me, Dave.
0: Let's continue on with tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk show. Glad to have you along this evening with me. I'm Dave Mitchell. And as we look at what else is happening around the college football scene, there's a lot happening. But let's stick mainly in the Big Ten, where last year they sent... Seven teams into bowl games. Michigan, Michigan State, Minnesota, Northwestern, Purdue, Nebraska, and Wisconsin. And if Penn State and Ohio State had been eligible for bowl games, they probably would have sent nine. In those seven ball games, the Big Ten finished two and five. But ideally, the best game of the lot was South Carolina-Michigan where South Carolina won in the final seconds 33-28. to 28. And in that game, who could forget the hit that Jadavian Clowney put on the Michigan running back to cause a fumble late in that game and really turn the tide on things. Ohio State and Michigan are, again, the favorites to win the Big Ten this year. And Jeremy Fowler of CVS Sports talks about what is going to happen in the Big Ten this year and how he feels it will go.
5: Yeah, clearly not only the Big Ten, but in the entire country, Ohio State, should be right there. I mean, if Urban Meyer comes in first year and, and knocks off two undefeated seasons, uh, that would be arguably a bigger feat than what he did at Florida. He never had an undefeated season at Florida. I know the Big Ten's a little easier uh, in some regards, but they certainly have the offensive firepower to get it done. Defensively, they've lost some key players, uh, but I, I think they should be fine. At Ryan Shazer, the linebacker, is one of the most underrated players in the country. Um, they've recruited well enough uh, to to do well on that side of the ball. So they should have plenty of firepower.
2: And Michigan's another team that I know you like. They're one of the best teams in the Big Ten.
5: Yeah, they're replacing a a few starters on each side of the ball. Greg Madison, the defensive coordinator, is one of the best in the country. I'm not really worried about that side of the ball. You know, they they have some experience at wide receiver, uh, which could be interesting for Devin Gardner, the new quarterback, who started five games last year but looked pretty polished. Uh, as a pure pocket passer. So it'll be interesting to see what they do there, if they have enough weapons offensively. And the offensive line is a little bit of an issue, but it is Michigan. They've recruited a very high level under Brady Hoke the last three years. Um, you know, they should have enough younger players to, to roll through the pipeline and be just fine.
0: All right, Jeremy, if Ohio
2: State and Michigan are on top, give me a sleeper team in the Big Ten.
5: Well, it's sort of hard to call Northwestern a sleeper because they won ten games last year. However, I think they're a sleeper to potentially win the conference uh, this, this is a culture Northwestern that Pat Fitzgerald, head coach, has created. It's tough-minded. They're going to get after you. They have 15 starters returning. They're not all that flashy, but they're actually starting to get some pretty good playmaking on offense between quarterback King Coulter and uh, running back Benrick Mark. Question marks will be at receiver and offensive line. They lose some parts there. Uh, but Kyle Prater, the former five-star USC guy at receiver, should be able to soften the blow a little bit there. I think that they really have a chance.
2: Northwestern's going up. The arrows pointing down on which team?
5: Certainly, everybody was impressed with what Bill O'Brien did in his first year going 8-4 and four in very difficult circumstances. However, uh, you know, they lose a lot of stars. They lose their top two linebackers, players that were very good. They lose defensive tackle Jordan Hill, uh, who was an all-Big Ten first-teamer, and then they're going to have to break in a new quarterback. It looks like the five-star QB Christian Hackenberg is the guy, or he'll have every chance to win that job, but you're still breaking in a young player. Uh, which could be interesting. You know, they have a few playmakers to work with, and they're always going to be tough over there, but it's still going to be interesting to see what they do. I I, I don't know if they're going to implode and go under 500. I don't think that. But I, I'm not ready to vault them into the 9- and 10-win realm. I think they'll be in that 6- to 8-win uh, range. How about a key
2: conference game, Jeremy, something that really could decide things in the Big Ten?
5: Well, I'm looking at Ohio State at Northwestern. And, you know, that could be a little bit of a slap in the face to the folks in Ann Arbor because hmm. they're used to that Ohio State-Michigan game in late November every year, which is always a classic. However, I really think this is a huge game to set the tone for the rest of the year. It should be uh, Urban Meyer's toughest road test of the season at that point. they got to come into Chicago and play. And, uh, you know, North- Northwestern, they're ready to make a leap. They feel like last year they gave away – three games that were very tight within a few minutes, a few plays, they could have maybe even been undefeated, or at least that's the way they feel and what they've been preaching all offseason. They're going to be pointing to this game to make a statement uh, that reverberates through the entire Big Ten.
2: How about a non-conference game that's going to be big for the Big Ten?
5: Well, I'm looking at week two. I see uh, Michigan hosting Notre Dame in Ann Arbor. I mean, this is a big week for Michigan. Uh, you know, last year they showed glimpses. Uh, but the finish with just eight wins, didn't pull off the bowl win against South Carolina. I mean, they're, they're going to be hungry to do something early on, and Notre Dame will be a good time to get them, uh, with some of the pieces they've lost. They're still going to be stout defensively, uh, but losing Everett Golson at quarterback, losing Tyler Eifert at tight end, you know, you wonder how they're going to move the ball downfield. Uh, they're going to have Tommy Rees a quarterback who's got experience, but you never know how he's going to respond in a tough environment like Michigan. So, I feel like Michigan has a lot playing for it in that week uh, and a lot to take advantage of. I think that they're going to come out ready and it's going to be a huge game.
0: It will be a huge game. Matter of fact, that will be the last game that Michigan and Notre Dame will play, which really irked Brady Hoke. You know, there are three new coaches in the Big Ten this year. And, of course, Michigan needs to come back and have a stellar uh outing in that Notre Dame contest. And they've got Ohio State in Ann Arbor this year. Should be a very good year for the Big Ten. Should be a very good year for both Ohio State and Michigan. And as Jeremy Fowler said, Northwestern could be the sleeper. Very tough-minded team. Look for a big season out of the Big Ten this year. So let's go south to the conference that has won seven straight National championships, that being the SEC. But I don't want to talk about what's going on on the football field. We'll do that with the SEC next week. What I want to talk about is what South Carolina coach Steve Spurrier said at Media Days on Tuesday. He opened his address by divulging the vote that the conference football and basketball coaches held at their annual meetings in Destin, Florida. He said the coaches voted 14 nothing in both sports to give all players a stipend of between $3,600 and $3,900 per year to cover their expenses. Now Spurrier's plan would average out to about $300 per player per game. But don't expect that to happen anytime soon. Mainly because, of course, as we said earlier, The NCAA is revoking their contract with EA Sports, and they're going to lose all those millions and billions of dollars that they get off of that football game. No, I'm just kidding. But what's going to happen here is the NCAA is not going to approve this. It would be taking money out of their pocket. That's why they're not going to approve it. It has not even been forwarded to the conference officials yet. Yet, Steve Slive, the president of the SEC, is really behind it. And there is no timetable to even submit it to the conference or the NCAA because the NCAA also has to sign off on this move. Now, Spurrier said he won't stop pushing this agenda for players to receive funding unless he hears from the highest office in the land. He said if President Obama were to say, Spurrier, you and the coaches need to quit fighting for your players, they get enough, they get enough on full scholarship, then is when he'll shut up about it. Well, we talked about this last week with Mike Dice about Jimmy Haslam, the owner of the Cleveland Browns and CEO of the Pilot Flying J truck stop chain. We talked about it last week and said at the time that the Pilot Flying J company was worth $4 billion dollars and that all the lawsuits that were encumbering the company due to this rebate fraud that the FBI and the IRS are investigating the company about would only total up to about $40 million, and it would really just be a dent in the fender of the company. Well, Haslam has entered into an agreement this week to pay the back rebates to those that were defrauded. In addition to the original amount those companies were due, Pilot Flying J also added 6% interest. And this was signed off by a federal judge in Arkansas who gave the preliminary approval on the class action settlement. Now, this comes after Haslam said the company, which didn't admit wrongdoing in the settlement offer, has finished its audits regarding these rebates. And according to what Haslam said in a letter released Monday, via the Cleveland Plain Dealer, he said that the company, Pilot Flying J, and I'm prefacing here, still has a lot to do to regain the trust of their customers. There are 13 other lawsuits in different states involving the alleged lack of rebates. Already five former Pilot Flying J employees have pleaded guilty to federal charges regarding the rebates. Pilot's commercial customers, according to Elizabeth Alexander, one of the plaintiff's attorneys, told the newspaper The Tennessean that they will get every penny they are owed because the settlement provides for an independent accountant review and an additional interest payment, and there will be no lingering questions as to the accuracy of the payment amount. And guess what? By the way, Haslam still isn't interested in selling the Cleveland Browns, which is still being reported by the Cleveland media. Well, that's enough of football for tonight's show. Let's turn ourselves... Across the sea to Scotland where the course is bare. The course is brown. The roughs are like playing in a wheat field. The bunkers could be anywhere on the golf course and they are deeper than you will find anywhere here in the United States. And where am I talking about? Of course, the British Open. That golf tournament is going on. It started this morning at Muirfield in Scotland And, of course, with those fairways and greens looking brown and coarse, but they're very fast and hard to judge, and that's the way the Scots like it. Well, after the first round, Zach Johnson is leading at 5-under par, one shot ahead of Mark O'Mara and Rafael Cabrera-Bello. Tom Lehman and Miguel Angel Jimenez are tied for third at 3-under. Phil Mickelson, of course, ESPN's darling child who goes into every tournament, ready to choke it away because he's worried about the taxes he may have to pay if he wins, says he played well, then he took a stab at the course. He registered a 200-par first round and then said, I got really lucky with my tee time because I think the R&A was worried about the scores going too low and there are some really funky pin placements. He added he didn't think anyone in the afternoon would shoot a low score. Every time Mickelson plays a tournament, he's got something to say. Why does everybody think that he's he's such a good guy? Well, he was wrong. Tiger Woods ended the first round at 200 par also. But he had the best round on the back nine of anyone. He shot a 300 par, which totally throws Mickelson's argument right under the bus. He had no problems. R&A Chief Executive Peter Dawson saw no problem with the course. He says they have the conditions that they really like to have. Hard, fast, running conditions. And they've set up the course to test the player's course management strategy as much as anything. And that's what Dawson said on the BBC. Of course, last night was the SPS, And that's always a yearly thing. It's the sports... Network's answer to the Oscars, and actually I had originally thought that I would end tonight's show with Jim Valvano's magnificent speech from 1993, but the winner of the Arthur Ashe Award last night was Robin Roberts. She has been suffering from cancer over the last few years. She's a former anchor on ESPN and now the current morning anchor on Good morning, America. She made such a stirring speech last night after introduced by LeBron James, and that I'm going to end tonight's show with that speech. And listen to what LeBron James says at the very beginning as he gives a very emotional thought for all athletes around the world. Don't forget, we'll be back next Thursday night here. We'll talk about the SEC on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show next Thursday night at 7 p.m. And join Mark Donahue and I on Monday night here at UST as we talk on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show at 9 o'clock about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds as they get back into second-half action tomorrow night. Once again, Robert Roberts is going to sign off tonight's show. Thanks for joining me this evening. I'll talk to you again next week. Until then... Here's Robin Robertson. Have a good night, everybody. And it's a
1: time that we're working out, or it's a time when we feel like we have adversity that hits us, and we, we start to think about, I can't, or it's too hard, or we can't do it. Uh, let's just think about this moment. Uh, it's an unbelievable woman, and I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be in this position. So I'm honored to present the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage. It's the most beautiful, strong woman I've ever been around. Ms. Robbins Roberts.
6: Thank you. Thank you. You know, at this moment, I'm, I'm filled with such gratitude. Thanks to Mrs. Obama for her warm words and to LeBron for graciously adding to this immense honor. You know, it's a moment I, I couldn't, couldn't even begin to dream of when I began my career. You heard me. I, I just wanted to be the best sports journalist that I could be. I wanted to be a pro athlete. That's what I really wanted to be. I wanted to be a pro athlete, but there's something, there's something called, wait a minute, what is that again? Oh yes, ability that you must have. So I am in awe of your vast accomplishments and to be in your company tonight and in the company of some, some old dear friends at ESPN. I realize there are many worthy of holding this honor. Others who have exhibited far more courage, strength, and resilience, and it's humbling for me to represent you tonight. I draw strength from you. You give me the courage to face down any challenge to know that when fears, when fear knocks to let faith answer the door. Those of us who are fortunate to have overcome some form of illness or adversity are often told that we are strong. I I didn't find that strength on my own. It's a quality that grew with every kind word of support, every prayer, every tweet, every email, every phone call. I gained strength from the doctors and nurses who checked on me long after their shift was over, from those I knew and others I may never know who took time out of their busy lives to reach out and let me know they were thinking of me, that they were praying for me every step of my journey. Through it all, I learned that strength True strength isn't when you face down life's challenges on your own. It's when you take them on by accepting the help, faith, and love of others and knowing you are lucky to have those. Arthur Ashe was a dear, dear friend of mine, as you heard. He taught me the importance of using the platform we were blessed to be given to be of service to others. And he showed me, he showed all of us that through his selfless actions off the court. You heard me, Mama used to say, make your mess your message, find the meaning behind whatever it is that you're going through because everybody's got something. And I am grateful to Bob Iger and Ann Sweeney for their compassion and support in helping me through my something, for helping me deliver my message of hope and to be a symbol of this too shall pass. My family and dear friends, man, their unconditional love brings me to tears. They make me believe that this isn't my fight, but rather our fight. My big sister, Sally Ann, my donor, I wouldn't be standing here. Heck, I wouldn't be standing anywhere if it were not for you, and I thank you for that. I remember, lastly, I remember when Jim Valvano was the first recipient of the Arthur Ashe Courage Award, and I was standing backstage. I was backstage, the next presenter on, after Jimmy Fee when he accepted the honor with an inspiring speech that touched us all and still does. That night, in establishing the V Foundation for Cancer Research, Jim said, We need your help. I need your help. We need money for research. It may not save my life. It may save my children's. It may save someone you love. And I've been blessed to achieve things in life I could never have imagined as that little girl growing up in Mississippi. But most of all, I never imagined that I'd be able to be standing here 20 years after Jimmy V's speech and say that because of everyone who has responded to his challenge, because of all the donations, research and support, mine is one of the lives that's been saved. And now I ask you to save someone else, give strength to someone else. Join, if you can, the Bone Marrow Registry. Donate to make more research possible. Take part in clinical trials as I have and my sister has. And thanks to my dream team of doctors and nurses, I now have, I literally have my sister's DNA. But all of you here tonight and you there at home, and especially my wonderful, caring ESPN and ABC GMA family, Yes, I have my sister's DNA, but you will always have my heart. And I thank you.
0: Thank you, Robin Roberts. Thank you for listening. I'm Dave Mitchell. Good night, everyone.